this one one of your favourites? If you listen to us on Spotify, you can follow the link in the show notes to hear all the episodes in this book in one playlist so you can spend more time settling down for the night and less time scrolling. Sweet dreams. Good evening and welcome to the sleepy bookshelf where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm Elizabeth, your host, and I'm so glad to have you here with me. Tonight, we'll be starting a new book, Journey to the Center of the Earth, by Jules Verne, originally published in French as Voyage au Centre de la Terre, in 1864. We'll be reading the first English edition, translated from the original by an anonymous translator and published in 1871 by Griffith and Farron. While other later translations are considered to be more faithful to the original, this has been the most widely read and may be more familiar. If you have read a different translation, you might perhaps notice some details are slightly different. If this is your first visit to the sleepy bookshelf, then welcome. If not, then it's good to have you back. Don't worry about falling asleep before I finish this part of the story. At the beginning of the next episode, I'll give you a thorough recap so you can relax without worrying about missing anything important. Just keep your mind focused on the sound of my voice and before you know it, you'll be fast asleep. Lastly, be aware that all the books on this show are selected and edited to help you fall asleep. We keep the plot lines, protagonists, antagonists, and moments of tension, but we do remove anything that might be startling or upsetting to ensure you always get a good night's sleep. That's what makes this the sleepy bookshelf. Before we begin, let's enjoy this moment just to settle in for the night. Take an inhale and a big stretch. And on your exhale, relax into a comfortable position. If there are any parts of your body that still feel tense, then use this time to give them an extra stretch. Take one more deep breath, collecting any worries or concerns on your inhale, and then let them all go on your exhale. And now, just listen to the sound of my voice as you make your way into a peaceful sleep. And while you do that, I'll turn to the first pages of Journey to the Center of the Earth.
Chapter 1 My Uncle Makes a Great Discovery Looking back to all that has occurred to me since that eventful day, I'm scarcely able to believe in the reality of my adventures. They were truly so wonderful that even now I'm bewildered when I think of them. My uncle was German, having married my mother's sister, an Englishwoman. Being very much attached to his fatherless nephew, he invited me to study under him in his home in Germany. This home was in a large town, and my uncle, a professor of philosophy, chemistry, geology, mineralogy, and many other ologies. One day, after passing some hours in the laboratory, my uncle being absent at the time, I suddenly felt the necessity of renovating the tissues. I was hungry and was about to rouse up our old French cook when my uncle, Professor von Hardwig, suddenly opened the street door and came rushing upwards. Now, Professor Hardwig, my worthy uncle, is by no means a bad sort of man. He is, however, choleric and original. To bear with him means to obey, and scarcely had his heavy feet resounded within our joint domicile. Then he called for me to attend upon him. Harry, he called. I hastened to obey, but before I could reach his room, jumping three steps at a time, he was stamping his right foot upon the landing. Are you coming up? He said in a hurried tone. Now, to tell the truth, at that moment, I was far more interested in the question as to what was to constitute our dinner than in any problem of science. To me, soup was more interesting than soda, an omelette more tempting than arithmetic, and an artichoke of ten times more value than any amount of asbestos. But my uncle was not a man to be kept waiting, so adjoining, therefore, all minor questions, I presented myself before him. He was a very learned man. Now, most persons in this category supply themselves with information, as peddlers do with goods, for the benefit of others, and they lay upon stores in order to diffuse them abroad for the benefit of society in general. Not so my excellent uncle, Professor Hardwig. He studied. He consumed the midnight oil. He pored over heavy tomes and digested huge quartos and folios in order to keep the knowledge he acquired to himself. There was a reason, and it may be regarded as a good one, why my uncle objected to display his learning 
more than was absolutely necessary. He stammered. And when intent upon explaining the phenomena of the heavens, he was apt to find himself at fault and allude in such a vague way to sun, moon, and stars that few were able to comprehend his meaning. To tell the honest truth, when the right word would not come, it was generally replaced by a very powerful adjective. In connection with the sciences, there are many almost unpronounceable names, and my uncle being very fond of using them, his habit of stammering was not thereby improved. In fact, there were periods in his discourse when he would finally give up and swallow his discomfiture in a glass of water. As I said, my uncle, Professor Hardwig, was a very learned man, and I now add, a most kind relative. I was bound to him by the double ties of affection and interest. I took deep interest in all his doings and hoped someday to be almost as learned myself. It was a very rare thing for me to be absent from his lectures. Like him, I preferred mineralogy to all the other sciences. My hope was to gain real knowledge of the earth. Geology and mineralogy were to us the sole objects of life, and in connection with these studies, many a fair specimen of stone, chalk, or metal did we break with our hammers. Steel rods, lodestones, glass pipes, and bottles of various acids were more often before us than our meals. My uncle Hardwig was once known to classify 600 different geological specimens by their weight, hardness, fusibility, sound, taste, and smell. He corresponded with all the great, learned, and scientific people of the age. I was, therefore, in constant communication with Sir Humphrey Davy, Captain Franklin, and other great scientists. But before I state the subject on which my uncle wished to confer with me, I must say a word about his personal appearance. Alas, my readers will see a very different portrait of him at a future time, after he has gone through the fearful adventures yet to be related. My uncle was fifty years old, tall, thin, and wiry, Large spectacles hid, to a certain extent, his vast, round, and goggle eyes, while his nose was irreverently compared to a thin file. The truth being told, however, the only article really attracted to my uncle's nose was tobacco. 
Another peculiarity of his was that he always stepped a yard at a time and clenched his fists as if he were going to hit something. And he was, when in one of his peculiar humors, very far from a pleasant companion. It is further necessary to observe that he lived in a very nice house, in that very nice street, the Konigstrasse, at Hamburg. Though lying in the center of a town, it was perfectly rural in its aspect, half wood, half bricks, with old-fashioned gables, one of the few old houses spared by the Great Fire of 1842. When I say a nice house, I mean a handsome house, old, tottering, and not exactly comfortable to English notions. A house a little off the perpendicular and inclined to fall into the neighboring canal. It was exactly the house for a wandering artist to depict, all the more that you could scarcely see it for ivy and a magnificent old tree which grew over the door. My uncle was rich. His house was his own property while he had a considerable private income. To my notion, the best part of what was dear to him was his goddaughter, Gretchen, and the old cook, the young lady, the professor and I, were the sole inhabitants of the house. I loved mineralogy. I loved geology. To me, there was nothing like pebbles, and if my uncle had been in a little less of a fury, we should have been the happiest of families. To prove the excellent Hardwig's impatience, I solemnly declare that when the flowers in the drawing room pots began to grow, he rose every morning at four o'clock to make them grow quicker by pulling the leaves. Having described my uncle, I will now give an account of our interview. He received me in his study, a perfect museum containing every natural curiosity that can well be imagined, minerals, however, predominating. Every one was familiar to me, having been catalogued by my own hand. My uncle, apparently oblivious of the fact that he had summoned me to his presence, was absorbed in a book. He was particularly fond of early editions, tall copies, and unique works. Wonderful, he said tapping his forehead. Wonderful. It was one of those yellow-leaved volumes now rarely found on stalls, and to me it appeared to possess but little value. My uncle, however, was in raptures. He admired its binding, the clearness of its characters, 
the ease with which it opened in his hand, and he repeated aloud half a dozen times that it was very, very old. To my fancy, he was making a great fuss about nothing, but it was not my province to say so. On the contrary, I professed considerable interest in the subject and asked him what it was about. It is the Heimskringler of Snor Talson, he said, the celebrated Icelandic author of the 12th century. It is a true and correct account of the Norwegian princes who reigned in Iceland. My next question related to the language in which it was written. I hoped at all events it was translated into German. My uncle was indignant at the very thought and declared he wouldn't give a penny for a translation. His delight was to have found the original work in the Icelandic tongue, which he declared to be one of the most magnificent and yet simple idioms in the world, while at the same time its grammatical combinations were the most varied known to students. About as easy as German, was my insidious remark. My uncle shrugged his shoulders. The letters, at all events, I said, are rather difficult of comprehension. It is a runic manuscript, the language of the original population of Iceland, invented by Odin himself, said my uncle, frustrated by my ignorance. I was about to venture upon some misplaced joke on the subject when a small scrap of parchment fell out of the leaves. Like a hungry man, Snatching at a morsel of bread, the professor seized it. It was about five inches by three and was scrawled over in the most extraordinary fashion. The lines written on the venerable piece of parchment have wonderful importance as they induced my uncle to undertake the most wonderful series of adventures which ever fell to the lot of human beings. My uncle looked keenly at the document for some moments and then declared that it was runic. The letters were similar to those in the book, but then what did they mean? This was exactly what I wanted to know. Now, as I had a strong conviction that the runic alphabet and dialect were simply an invention to mystify poor human nature, I was delighted to find that my uncle knew as much about the matter as I did, which was nothing. At all events, the tremulous motion of his fingers made me think so. And yet, he muttered to himself, It is old Icelandic, I am sure of it. And my uncle ought to have known, for he was a perfect polyglot dictionary in himself. He did not pretend, 
like a certain learned pundit to speak the two thousand languages and four thousand idioms made use of in different parts of the globe, but he did know many of them. It is a matter of great doubt to me now to what violent measures my uncle's impetuosity might have led him had not the clock struck two and our old French cook called out to let us know that dinner was on the table. Bother the dinner, said my uncle. But as I was hungry, I sallied forth to the dining room where I took up my usual quarters. Out of politeness, I waited three minutes, but there was no sign of my uncle, the professor. I was surprised. He was not usually so blind to the pleasure of a good dinner. It was a luxurious meal. Parsley soup, a ham omelette with sorrel trimmings, an oyster of veal stewed with prunes, delicious fruit, and sparkling Moselle. For the sake of poring over this musty old piece of parchment, my uncle forbore to share our meal. To satisfy my conscience, I ate for both. The old cook and housekeeper was nearly out of her mind. After taking so much trouble, to find the professor not appear at dinner was, to her, a sad disappointment, which, as she occasionally watched the havoc I was making on the food, became also alarm. What if my uncle were to come to the table after all? Suddenly, just as I had consumed the last apple and drunk the last glass of wine, a terrible voice was heard at no great distance. It was my uncle roaring for me to come to him. I made very nearly one leap of it, so loud, so fierce was his tone. Chapter 2 The Mysterious Parchment I declare, said my uncle, I declare to you it is runic and contains some wonderful secret which I must get at at any price. I was about to reply when he stopped me. Sit down, he said, quite commandingly, and write to my dictation. I obeyed. I will substitute a letter of our alphabet for that of the runic. We will then see what we produce. Now, begin and make no mistakes. The dictation commenced with an incomprehensible result. Scarcely giving me time to finish, my uncle snatched the document from my hands and examined it with the most rapt and deep attention. I should like to know what it means, he said after a long period. I certainly could not tell him, nor did he expect me to. 
his conversation being uniformly answered by himself. I declare it puts me in mind of a cryptograph, he went on. Unless indeed the letters have been written without any real meaning. And yet, why take so much trouble? Who knows, but I may be on the verge of some great discovery. My candid opinion was that it was all rubbish, but this opinion I kept carefully to myself as my uncle's temper was not pleasant to bear. All this time, he was comparing the book with the parchment. The manuscript volume and the smaller document are written in different hands, he said. The cryptograph is of a much later date than the book. There is an undoubted proof of the correctness of my surmise. The first letter is a double M, which is only added to the Icelandic language in the 12th century. This makes the parchment 200 years posterior to the volume. The circumstances appeared very probable and very logical, but it was all surmise to me. To me, it appears probable that this sentence was written by some owner of the book, he said. Now, who was the owner is the next important question. Perhaps by great good luck it may be written somewhere in the volume. With these words, Professor Hardwig took off his spectacles and, taking a powerful magnifying glass, examined the book carefully. On the flyleaf was what appeared to be a blot of ink, but on examination proved to be a line of writing almost effaced by time. This was what he sought, and after some considerable time, he made out certain letters. Anna Sacknusum, he said in a joyous and triumphant tone. That is not only an Icelandic name, but of a learned professor of the 16th century, a celebrated alchemist. I bowed as a sign of respect. These alchemists, he continued, Avicenna, Bacon, Luli, Paracelsus, were the true, the only, learned men of the day. They made surprising discoveries. May not this Sacknusum, nephew of mine, have hidden in this parchment some astounding invention. I believe the cryptograph to have a profound meaning, which I must make out. My uncle walked about the room in a state of excitement almost impossible to describe. It may be so, sir, I timidly observed. But why conceal it from posterity if it be a useful, worthy discovery? Why, 
How should I know? said he. Did not Galileo make a secret of his discoveries in connection with Saturn? But we shall see. Until I discover the meaning of this sentence, I shall neither eat nor sleep. My dear uncle, I began. Nor you neither, he added. It was lucky I had taken double allowance that day. In the first place, he continued, there must be a clue to the meaning. If we could find that, the rest would be easy enough. I began seriously to reflect. The prospect of going without food and sleep was not a promising one so I determined to do my best to solve the mystery. My uncle, meanwhile, went on with his soliloquy. The way to discover is easy enough, he said. In this document, there are 132 letters, giving 79 consonants to 53 vowels, This is about the proportion found in most southern languages, the idioms of the north being much more rich in consonants. We may confidently predict, therefore, that we have to deal with a southern dialect. Nothing could be more logical, I mused to myself. Now, said Professor Hardwig, to trace the particular language... As Shakespeare says, that is the question, was my rather satirical reply. This man, Saknusum, he continued, was a very learned man. Now, as he did not write in the language of his birthplace, he probably, like most in the 16th century, wrote in Latin. If, however, I prove wrong in this guess, We must try Spanish, French, Italian, Greek, and Hebrew. My own opinion, though, is decidedly in favor of Latin. This proposition startled me. Latin was my favorite study, and it seems sacrilege to believe this gibberish to belong to the country of Virgil. Very probably... I replied, not to contradict him. Let us see into the matter, continued my uncle. Here, you see, we have a series of 132 letters, apparently thrown pell-mell upon paper, without method or organization. There are words which are composed wholly of consonants, others which are nearly all vowels. This appears an extraordinary combination, he went on, pointing to a line on the paper. Probably we shall find that the phrase is arranged according to some mathematical plan. No doubt a certain sentence has been written out and then jumbled up. Some plan to which some figure is the clue. Now, Harry, to show your wit, what is that figure? 
I could give him no hint. My thoughts were indeed far away. While he was speaking, I had caught sight of the portrait of his goddaughter Gretchen and was wondering when she would return. We were engaged to be married and loved one another very sincerely. But my uncle, who never thought of such earthly matters, knew nothing of this. Without noticing my abstraction, the professor began reading the puzzling cryptograph all sorts of ways, according to some theory of his own. Presently, rousing my wandering attention, he dictated one precious attempt to me. I mildly handed it over to him, thinking it looked like still more gibberish. I could scarcely keep from laughing, while my uncle, on the contrary, got in a towering passion, struck the table with his fist, darted out of the room, out of the house, and then, taking to his heels, was presently lost to sight. Chapter 3 An Astounding Discovery What is the matter? said the cook, entering the room. When will the professor have his dinner? Never, said I. And his supper? she asked. I don't know, I replied. He says he will eat no more. Neither shall I. My uncle has determined to fast and make me fast until he makes out this abominable inscription. You will be starved to death, she said. I was very much of the same opinion, but not liking to say so, sent her away and began some of my usual work of classification. But try as I might, Nothing could keep me from thinking alternately of the stupid manuscript and of the pretty Gretchen. Several times I thought of going out, but my uncle would have been angry at my absence. At the end of an hour, my allotted task was done. How to pass the time? I began by lighting my pipe, like all other students, I delighted in tobacco, and seating myself in the great armchair, I began to think. Where was my uncle? I could easily imagine him tearing along some solitary road, gesticulating, talking to himself, cutting the air with his cane, and still thinking of the absurd bit of hieroglyphics. Would he hit upon some clue? Would he come home in better humor? While these thoughts were passing through my brain, I mechanically took up the puzzle and tried every imaginable way of grouping the letters. I put them together by twos, by threes, fours, and fives, in vain. 
nothing intelligible came out except that the 14th and 16th made ice in English. The 84th, 85th, and 86th, the word sir. Then, at last, I seemed to find a handful of Latin words I knew. Aha! There seems to be some truth in my uncle's notion, thought I. Then again, I seemed to find the word luco, which means sacred wood. In the third line, I appeared to make out a perfect Hebrew word, and at the last, the syllable mer, which was French. It was enough to drive one mad. Four different idioms in this absurd phrase. What connection could there be between ice, sir, anger, cruel, sacred wood, changing, mother, R, and C? The first and the last might, in a sentence connected with Iceland, means sea of ice. But what of the rest of this monstrous cryptograph? I was, in fact, fighting against an insurmountable difficulty. My brain was almost on fire. My eyes were strained with staring at the parchment. The whole absurd collection of letters appeared to dance before my vision in a number of black little groups. My mind was possessed with temporary hallucination. I was stifling. I wanted air. Mechanically, I fanned myself with the document, of which now I saw the back and then the front. Imagine my surprise when, glancing at the back of the wearisome puzzle, the ink having gone through, I clearly made out Latin words, and among others, craterum and terrestra. I had discovered the secret. It came upon me like a flash of lightning. I had got the clue. All you had to do to understand the document was to read it backwards. My delight, my emotion may be imagined. My eyes were dazzled, and I trembled so that at first I could make nothing of it. One look, however, would tell me all I wish to know. Let me read. I said to myself, after drawing a long breath. I spread it before me on the table. I passed my finger over each letter. I spelled it through. In my excitement, I read it out. What horror and stupefaction took possession of my soul. I was like a man who had received a knockdown blow. Was it possible that I really read the terrible secret and it had really been accomplished? A man had dared to do 
What? No living being should ever know. Never, said I, jumping up. Never shall my uncle be made aware of the dread secret. He would be quite capable of undertaking the terrible journey. Nothing would check him. Nothing stop him. Worse, he would compel me to accompany him, and we should be lost forever. But no, such folly and madness cannot be allowed. I was almost beside myself with rage and fury. My worthy uncle is already nearly mad, I said aloud. This would finish him. By some accident, he may make the discovery, in which case we are both lost. Perish the fearful secret. Let the flames forever bury it in oblivion. I snatched up book and parchment and was about to cast them into the fire when the door opened and my uncle entered. I had scarcely time to put down the wretched documents before my uncle was by my side. He was profoundly absorbed. His thoughts were evidently bent on the terrible parchment. Some new combination had probably struck him while taking his walk. He seated himself in his armchair and with a pen began to make an algebraical calculation. I watched him with anxious eyes. My flesh crawled as it became probable that he would discover the secret. His combinations I knew now were useless, I having discovered the one only clue. For three mortal hours, he continued without speaking a word, without raising his head, scratching, rewriting, calculating over and over again. I knew that in time he must hit upon the right phrase. The letters of every alphabet have only a certain number of combinations. But then, years might elapse before he would arrive at the correct solution. Still, time went on. Night came. The sounds in the streets ceased. And still... My uncle went on, not even answering our worthy cook when she called us to supper. I did not dare leave him, so waved her away, and at last fell asleep on the sofa. When I awoke, my uncle was still at work. His red eyes, his pallid countenance, his matted hair, his feverish hands... His hectically flushed cheeks showed how terrible had been his struggle with the impossible and what fearful fatigue he had undergone during that long, sleepless night. It made me quite ill to look at him. Though he was rather severe with me, I loved him, and my heart ached at his sufferings. He was so overcome by one idea 
but he could not even get in a passion. All his energies were focused at one point, and I knew that by speaking one little word, all this suffering would cease. I could not speak it. My heart was nevertheless inclining towards him. Why then did I remain silent? In the interest of my uncle himself, nothing shall make me speak, I muttered. He will want to follow in the footsteps of the other. I know him well. His imagination is a perfect volcano, and to make discoveries in the interest of geology, he would sacrifice his life. I will therefore be silent and strictly keep the secret I have discovered. To reveal it would be deadly for both of us. He would not only rush himself to destruction, but drag me with him. I crossed my arms, looked another way and smoked, resolved never to speak. When our cook wanted to go out to market or on any other errand, she found the front door locked and the key taken away. Was this done purposely or not? Surely Professor Hardwick did not intend the old woman and myself to become martyrs to his obstinate will. Were we to be starved to death? A frightful recollection came to my mind. Once we had fed on bits and scraps for a week, while he sorted some curiosities. Gave me the cramp even to think of it. I wanted my breakfast, and I saw no way of getting it. Still, my resolution held good. I would rather starve than yield. But the cook began to take me seriously to task. What was to be done? She could not go out and I dared not. My uncle continued counting and writing. His imagination seemed to have translated him to the skies. He never thought of eating nor drinking. In this way, twelve o'clock came round. I was hungry, and there was nothing in the house. The cook had eaten the last bit of bread this could not go on. It did, however, until two, when my sensations were terrible. After all, I began to think the document very absurd. Perhaps it might only be a gigantic hoax. Besides, some means would surely be found to keep my uncle back from attempting any such absurd expedition. On the other hand, if he did attempt anything so quixotic, I should not be compelled to accompany him. Another line of reasoning partially decided me. Very likely, he would make the discovery himself when I should have suffered starvation for nothing. Under the influence of hunger, this reasoning appeared admirable. I determined to tell all. 
the question now arose as to how it was to be done. I was still dwelling on the thought when he rose and put on his hat. What? Go out and lock us in? Never, I thought to myself. Uncle, I began. He did not even appear to hear me. Professor Hardwick, I said. What? He retorted. Did you speak? How about the key? I asked. What key? He replied. The key of the door? No, of these horrible hieroglyphics, I said. He looked at me from under his spectacles and started at the odd expression of my face. Rushing forward, he clutched me by the arm and keenly examined my countenance. His very look was an interrogation. I simply nodded. With an incredulous shrug of the shoulders, he turned upon his heel. Undoubtedly, he thought I had gone mad. I have made a very important discovery, I said. His eyes flashed with excitement. For a moment, neither of us spoke. It is hard to say which was most excited. You don't mean to say you have any idea of the meaning of the scroll? He asked. I do, was my desperate reply. Look at the sentences dictated by you. But it means nothing, was his answer. Nothing if you read it from left to right, I said. But mark it from right to left. Backwards, said my uncle in wild amazement. Oh, most cunning Zach Newsom, and I to be such a blockhead. He snatched up the document, gazed at it with haggard eye, and read it aloud as I had done. It read as follows. Descend into the crater of Snaifelsjökull, which the shade of Scartaris caresses, before the Kalends of July, audacious traveller, and you will reach the centre of the earth. I did it. Arna Saknusum. My uncle leapt three feet from the ground with joy. He looked radiant and handsome. He rushed about the room, wild with delight and satisfaction. He knocked over tables and chairs. He threw his books about until at last, utterly exhausted, he fell into his armchair. What's o'clock? He asked. About three, I answered. My dinner does not seem to have done me much good, he observed. Let me have something to eat. We can then start at once. Get my suitcase ready. What for? I asked. And your own, 
he continued, we start at once. My horror may be conceived. I resolved, however, to show no fear. Scientific reasons were the only ones likely to influence my uncle. Now there were many against this terrible journey. The very idea of going down to the center of the earth was simply absurd. I determined, therefore, to argue the point after dinner. My uncle's rage was now directed against the cook for having no dinner ready. My explanation, however, satisfied him, and having gotten the key, she soon contrived to get sufficient to satisfy our voracious appetites. During the repast, my uncle was rather happy than otherwise. He made some of those peculiar jokes which belonged exclusively to the learned. As soon as dessert was over, he called me to his study. We each took a chair on opposite sides of the table. Harry, he said in a soft and winning voice. I have always believed you ingenious, and you have rendered me a service never to be forgotten. Without you, this great, this wondrous discovery would never have been made. It is my duty, therefore, to insist on your sharing the glory. He is in good humor, thought I. I'll soon let him know my opinion of glory. In the first place, he continued, you must keep the whole affair a profound secret. There are no more envious men than scientific discoverers. Many would start on the same journey. At all events, we will be the first in the field. I doubt you're having many competitors, was my reply. A person of real scientific acquirements would be delighted at the chance, said the professor. We should find a perfect stream of pilgrims on the trace of Arna Saknusum if this document were once made public. But, my dear sir, is not this paper very likely to be a hoax? I urged. The book in which we find it is sufficient proof of its authenticity, he replied. I thoroughly allow that the celebrated professor wrote the lines, but only, I believe, as a kind of mystification, was my answer. Scarcely were the words out of my mouth when I was sorry I had uttered them. My uncle looked at me with a dark and gloomy scowl, and I began to be alarmed for the results of our conversation. His mood soon changed, however, and a smile took the place of a frown. We shall see, he remarked with decisive emphasis. 
But see, what is all this about Snaefels and this Scartaris? I have never heard anything about them, I said. The very point to which I am coming, said he. I lately received from my friend Augustus Peterman of Leipzig a map. Take down the third atlas from the second shelf, series two, plate four. I rose, went to the shelf, and presently returned with the volume indicated. This, said my uncle, is one of the best maps of Iceland. I believe it will settle all your doubts, difficulties, and objections. With a grim hope to the contrary, I stooped over the map. 